back up. Is this on? I'm off. Okay. I uh, trust that uh, you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. In some cases, uh, the home going of a parent. That's a difficult but wonderful thing as well for God. And uh, Suzanne and I, Suzanne can't be here today. She's a little under the weather and felt that she didn't want to infect anybody else. So uh, she sends her regards today. We celebrated Thanksgiving in a quiet fashion. Um, Our kids, who are all in the area, they scattered to the in-laws' house, and so we uh, ended up taking dinner to uh, a missionary couple. Uh, They're both 92 years old. They live down in Huntington, and I've been a part of their mission organization for over 30 years. It's just a privilege to share with them during that time. They spent uh, most of their career in Japan, but also other parts of Asia as well. And so, um, you know, it's a wonder. It's my, I love uh, all of the uh, Advent and uh, all of the things surrounding Christmas and Easter as well and what it means to to the people of God. But Thanksgiving, I, I, I happen to love, and I hope that you had a great, great time. One of my favorite, perhaps my favorite holiday of the entire year. But we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 1, that which I will say will not be long today, and you can thank God for that. (laughs) But I I hope that in some way it's instructive as well as encouraging as we walk out of here today. Reminded of a story in the Gospel accounts, so one evening near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus uh, spoke to his disciples after a busy day of ministry. And he said, let's uh, cross uh, to the other side of the sea. And so after the people were dismissed, the multitude was dismissed, the disciples took their weary leader uh, and put him in the boat, and they began to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. But as they were going, there arose a a lashing storm that turned the, the calm little sea into a wet fury. And it uh, created waves that were looking like it was going to swamp the boat as well as the inhabitants. And the disciples, uh, somewhat uh, peevishly and anxiously, they awoke their sleeping companion. And they asked Jesus a penetrating question. Uh, Don't you care that we're perishing? just forgetting that there is no sinking with the Savior aboard. I mean, Jesus didn't leave the glory of heaven and come to this earth in order to drown in the Sea of Galilee. And so he looked at the disciples, uh, and then he rebuked the wind, he rebuked the sea, and then he proceeded to rebuke the disciples for their fear and their faithlessness. Um, Afterward, the men could be heard mumbling amongst themselves, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now the Apostle John, those verses that we read just a few minutes ago, gives the most comprehensive answer to the most penetrating question in all of history, who is Jesus Christ? And John answers it all the way through the book of John. And so our verses today are something of an abstract of the entire gospel. And uh, we want to just highlight three things today uh, about Jesus in our text. Uh, They're simple, and I think you know them and believe them. 
But each one is freighted with implications as far as how it relates to you and to me. The first one is that Jesus is God. Uh, Again, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and then it says the Word was God. And if you were to drop down a few verses in John 1 to verse 14, it would read this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. So there's no doubt that the identity of the Word is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what God did is punch a hole in this world, and Jesus came down that first Christmas and dwelt among us. And one of the questions that come out of this is, why is Jesus called the Word? Well, when you think about, uh, go back to Genesis 1, uh, and think about the audible Word of God, uh, it says the audible Word of God is that uh, it created the heavens and the earth. It's uh, the creative power of God in action. God said, let there be light, and there was light. In Psalm 107, verse 20, the Lord sent the word and healed him. And here when we talk about the word of God, we're talking about both his compassionate spirit as well as his redemptive love. And so when we talk about Jesus being the word of God, it uh, makes a whole lot of sense. It's very fitting. Now, when we, uh, this would be subpoints. I didn't put them in your outline, but this would be still under that first point. Um, there are three things we discover about the word, and I'd briefly like to tick through them. First of all, it's eternal. You know, the human side of Jesus certainly had a beginning, you know, there on that first Christmas morning. But the divine side always was. In the beginning, the word was. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John 1.1, in the beginning, the word was. Now, when you took the two of them, take the two of them and put them together, what you discover is that in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the word already was. No matter how far back in time we go, we can never say with a heretical philosopher Arius that there once was a time when he was not. Jesus always was. He's eternal. Second thing that we learn about him is that the word is distinct from the Father. The word was with God. It, it's, that's, uh, you know, so what, what's happening here is that the Trinity is being alluded to. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Father is mentioned. The Holy Spirit will be mentioned a little bit later in the Gospel of John. So the word is God. And then the word was with God, distinct from the Father. And then the third thing we learn is that the word is deity. The word was God. Everything that can be said about the Father uh, can be said about the Son. In Jesus dwells all the wisdom, the glory, the power, and the holiness of the Father. In Jesus, the Father is known. You say, well, when Jesus walked this earth, wasn't he subordinate to the Father? And the answer is, yes, he was. But it was insubordination. Uh, subordination, I say. It's <laughs> not insubordination. <laughs> subordination to that of an equal to an equal. So this is the benchmark that really distinguishes 
Christianity from all other religions. You know, the Mormon religion would say uh, that Jesus attained the rank of a God by his, his obedience and by his, his faithfulness. Uh, the Jehovah Witness would say Jesus is a God, but he is not equal to Jehovah God. Christianity says that Jesus is distinct from God the Father, but he is equal to God the Father. This is really one of the non-negotiable elements of Orthodox Christianity. In other words, we can't compromise on the person and the character of Jesus Christ and still call ourselves a Christian. So this is kind of the, the high watermark of what the Christian faith is all about. And uh, just a, a little bit of a sidebar here. Uh, the dynamic love within the triune God is hinted at in John 1.18, and it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. When it says the bosom of the Father, what this implies is the tremendous amount of intimacy within Jesus and the Father, and the Spirit of God, of course, would be included in this as well. A great sign of intimacy, unity, and oneness. You know, the best marriages today can only get a taste of that. Uh, when you get married, you give all you know of yourself to all you know to your spouse, uh, to all you know of your spouse. But uh, when you get married, you only know yourself a little bit and you know a whole lot less of your spouse. But when you talk about the Trinity and the love that exists between the Trinity, we're talking about exhaustive knowledge. They know everything about it, and, and the love that exists there uh, is way beyond anything we could possibly experience here on earth. And the more we understand the love between the Trinity and the members of the Trinity, the more we'll understand and appreciate and have gratitude that somehow that love was extended to God's people as we trust Christ as our Savior and Lord. Um, let me get this next thing. There's a second major point that I want to talk about as well, and that Jesus is the creator of the universe. It says in verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus is the agent of the created order. He's the agent of creation. And he created the world knowing what it would cost him, knowing that, that sin and rebellion would end up being in this world, knowing what it would cost him to correct that situation. Um, one of the things about the, the world that God created, that Jesus created, is that it's infinitely complex. Uh, you know, when my sons, I have four sons, when they were young, I used to play a simple little game with them. And uh, what did man make? What did God make? And once they caught on, they never missed. You know, son, who created the shoe? Well, man created the shoe. Well, who created the foot that goes into the shoe? Well, God created the foot. Well, how do you know that, son? Well, Dad, you just know these things. 
Well, who created the chair? Well, man created the chair. Well, who created the, the trees that provide the lumber for the chair? Well, God created the trees that provide the lumber for the chair. Now, how do you know that, son? Well, Dad, you just know that kind of stuff. Well, who created the, the feather pillow? Well, man created the feather pillow. Well, who created the birds that provide the feathers for the feather pillow? Well, God created the birds that provide the feathers for the feather pillow. How do you know that, son? Well, Dad, you just know these things. Why are you asking me all these stupid questions? You know, it's, uh, you know children know that what, what man makes is simple, it's understandable, it's reproducible. What God makes is infinitely complex. You can take one little tiny aspect of the entire created order, spend hundreds of lifetimes examining it, and never fully exhaust it, never fully understand it. That's just the way God is. So Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. And then third, Jesus Christ is the source of spiritual life. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. All life is sourced in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what about evolution? Well, evolution has never fully answered the question of how inanimate matter, which is dead, can become animate matter, which is, which is alive. That's never been fully answered. So Jesus Christ is the source of spiritual life. Uh, spiritual life is sourced in him. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but been made alive in Christ. Jesus is the source of eternal life. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is found in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And abundant life is also sourced in Jesus Christ. He says, I have come into this world that you might have life and have it abundantly, which means that you would have life and really live. So life in all of its ramifications is sourced in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 4, we read that the, that the life of Christ is the light of men. And if you don't have Christ, obviously, you're going to live in darkness whether you realize it or not. Uh, let me illustrate that a little bit. When I, uh, between my high school years and my college years, uh, that summer before I left for college, I, I worked at a boys' camp uh, called Green Oak Ranch. It's down in Vista, California there, not too far from where I lived in San Diego. Uh, it's uh, still there as a ranch, but it doesn't function that way any longer. But it, uh, I worked there for a summer and uh, with a number of other counselors, but every week I get, got a new cabin full of 10-year-olds. And at that time, Vista was uh, not the place that it is today. It was very undeveloped, and there wasn't a lot of houses around. We were in the mountains there, and so being a counselor and giving those boys the opportunity of uh, hiking and engaging in crafts and sports and all of these things was just a wonderful thing. At night, however, when it became absolutely pitch black because there weren't any lights of the city around there. There wasn't much of a city there, and so it's just pitch black. And when we got in the cabins, the, the flashlights came on. 
And they had little flashlight wars, as they would call it, and they loved seeing whose light was the brightest. Uh, Of course, you can only do that in the middle of the night when it's dark outside to turn the various brightness of the flashlights. If you try and do it in the sunshine of the day, all of the differences in brightness begin to fade away. Uh, Let me make a spiritual transfer here a little bit. You see, as long as we live in the darkness of this world, we can sit around and compare the relative merits of, a, of human goodness, the difference between, say, a three-battery character and a two-battery character. And uh, we can, uh, you, know, make, uh, you know, make that comparison there. But all of those distinctions would fade in the brightness of the beauty of Jesus Christ. In other words, his coming to this earth reveals the profundity of all of our darkness, regardless of how you distinguish. You know, and because Christ came in here, we have to take a fork in a road. And we can either admit that our three-battery character isn't sufficient for a ticket to heaven and call on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or... We simply have to just take our own marred character and hold it up to a holy God and hope he'll do something about it. Uh, If we opt for the latter, then we're going to miss. We're going to become darkness. We're going to remain in darkness. And if we die in that fashion, we'll be an eternal loser. Now, C.S. Lewis in his uh, wonderful book, Mere Christianity, highlights in the opening chapters a little bit the different worldviews that compete uh, for the allegiance of men and women. Uh, one of them would be theism. And theism is uh, what we are all about here at Harvest. It's the, the biblical God of the universe. It's the uh, one to whom we can know and pray and love who's revealed himself to us. But then there's also naturalism. And naturalism uh, believes that the only thing that's real is matter. There's no spiritual world. There's no morality. There's no transcendent interference. Just what you can see around us, the matter. But then he also points out the, the pantheism. And pantheism is kind of the opposite uh, of, uh, of, of uh, naturalism. Pantheism doesn't believe in a personal God, but it believes in this spiritual force that's everywhere, that's in you and in me. So naturalism says the only thing that, that's real is, mater- is the material. The spiritual is an illusion. Pantheism would say the only thing that's real is the spiritual. The material is an illusion. Uh, you're an illusion. I'm an illusion. This, this meeting here is an illusion. This building is an illusion. Uh, everything is an illusion. You see, as different... However, as naturalism and pantheism are, they agree in one area, and that is that they contend that the universe is fundamentally impersonal, uh, without love, and devoid of absolute truth. And I would ask this, if the world is really devoid of absolute truth, uh, if the world is really that impersonal, then why does every molecule in our body crave for relationship? Uh, Why is there no greater pain than the pain of loneliness? 
why do we believe that love is the ultimate reality? And, and being dedicated to one another, we, we find that life gives meaning. You see, if we deny absolute truth, why does every professor of philosophy give their life to finding what they've already deemed irrelevant? Why is the idea of an impersonal world unbearable? It's because it's not an impersonal world. Why is the idea of a truthless world unbearable? Because it's not a truthless world. You know, if you're skeptical, and I don't assume that you are, but sometimes we begin that way. If we're skeptical, what we really need to do is let our fallen mind fall into accord with what our heart already knows is true. You know, uh, just a little bit of a sidebar here, and then I'll be done here. But some of you may be thinking, you know, I I believe everything you say, Gary. I I believe in the God of the Bible, and I believe that Jesus came into this world to save me from the sin that I've always committed. And, you know, but the doggone it, my spiritual life is just so inconsistent. I'm so flaky, spiritually speaking. I, I know that God just must be incredibly disappointed. And none of my friends here at Harvest know anything about what I'm going through. And I would probably disagree with you, not having been here very long. Everybody knows exactly what you're going through because everybody is going through exactly the same thing. How can God hate my sin and yet uh, be... Find, find a love for me and delight in what I, I, I am as a person. Delight in me as his child. How can God do that kind of a thing? And I would ask the same question. I, I, I experience the same thing you do. And the answer to the question, I believe, is that God looks at your life and he looks at my life from two different lenses. There's a narrow lens where God looks down and he sees the inconsistency of our life. He sees the sin. He sees the deception. He sees the hoarding. And he's grieved by that. But then he also looks at you and looks at me through a broad lens. And he sees the the mosaic of what we're becoming in Christ Jesus. And he's delighted. He's delighted in just that incremental progress, just uh, your awareness of who he is and what he's he's done for you. He takes tremendous delight in that. And so the the ticket for us, you know, here is that we don't want to give in to our pathology. We don't want to give in to our our ethical or moral weaknesses. We want to keep battling even though we fall at times, we want to keep battling because the Spirit of God gives us a lifetime to grow up. That's the beauty of it. You know, just keep living. Keep on putting one foot in front of another. You know, the reason that you need a God in this life is because there is one. And what Jesus comes is that he, when Jesus, he comes to earth, he created And he spoke truth. And what he does is he continues to speak that truth to you and me, to our own hearts, and he he inflames them. And so don't become discouraged because you can't live 
the way in which the Bible tells you to live. Just keep going. Keep putting a step in front of the next one. And keep your eyes on Christ. Don't bail. Don't throw it in. Just say, hey, this, it's not you anyway. It's God's and the Spirit of God that wants to work in you in such a way that you can honor and love and glorify the Lord. And this is the one who, uh, as we begin to look at the Advent season, which uh, is next week, uh, that will study that the birth, uh, the announcement, and the birth narratives, and see just who this babe was and how he affected the entire world during that time. So I'm going to ask. Are, we have a closing song. We do. Okay. Well, let me close in a word of prayer, and then you can stand for our final song. Our dear heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word and for. Uh, how it lets us know about you. And we consider our own lives and our fallen nature and the battle in which we engage. And uh, Father, as long as we're engaging in the battle, uh, that's a good thing. Help us never to give up and throw in the towel. Uh, We want to fight the inclinations we have and the desires of, of Satan himself and to live in a way that would honor you, uh, both in our private times, our alone times, our friendship times, our our church fellowship times. Uh, May we uh, be an encouragement to others uh, by even confessing our mistakes and thanking God that he's forgiven us and moving on. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. the bags you can drop that welcome card in the bag as it's going by Um, don't feel obligated to um, 